Hello and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show, brought to you by Ministry to State. They're not our actual sponsors, but it, it's nice to say that we are part of Ministry to State. I think we th- sometimes forget to mention that at the beginning. Uh, my name is Robert. Uh, I am here with my very good friend, Will. I have actually been gone for a couple uh, episodes, so it's, it's good to be back and, and be with you, Will. It is great to have you back. You have been sorely missed, and your editing skills have been appreciated, though. So knowing the invisible hand guiding the marketplace of the Will and Rob show is still present and active. That's true. I've been very much in the background, but it's nice to be behind the mic again uh, and with you. Uh, It's been a couple of episodes. What's been going on with you? What's what's new in your life? What's new in my life is really just keeping up with these events going on around uh, DC in the United States, which we're going to be talking about in a minute. Uh, Personally, I finished up um, seminary. I have one last class left that's on Thursday. So then I'll be totally done with everything. I got my beautiful seminary gift from Reformed Theological Seminary in the mail, which came with a Yeti coffee thermos and this great t-shirt. So uh, that's kind of a cause to celebrate and be excited about. It's too bad our listeners can't see you right now because you just have a shirt that just says Reformed stamped across your chest. It's Mm -hmm. kind of making me jealous. I wish I had something like that. It's Um, synonymous with correct. So. (laughs) I, uh, I'm also very happy for you as you come to the end of your seminary training. That's awesome. Um, yeah, a lot has been going on. It just kind of feels uh, very chaotic. You know, we're uh, still in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder and then the subsequent protests and other acts of police brutality as th- that have continued on uh, across the country. Uh, you also have the landmark court decision that was revealed yesterday or on Monday. And then in the background of all this, you still have COVID-19 and uh, sort of steps to reopen the country. You're also starting to see spikes of new cases in other places. And so we're just dealing with all these kind of things coming together again. And one thing that we've talked about, we've been sort of texting back and forth about, uh, is the, the, the way that these events are talked about in the media or in publications and sort of the narratives that are forming and just sort of the bifurcation of the, of the different narratives, the ways that uh, the events are polarized and tribes are set up and teams are established. Um, and something that we've, we've recognized, I think other Christians that we know or that we interact with on social media are starting to recognize. And so kind of wanted to look at that and say, how as Christians, how do we engage with those narratives? How do we parse them out? How do we say this is true and this is not true? Um, how do we stand for the eternal truths of God while also loving our neighbor and being kind to those who would believe different, differently than us? So wanted to sort of get your initial thoughts on that. What are some of the ways that you've seen that played out in the media or in the news or in whatever you're reading? And how, how's been your sort of interaction with it? Yeah, I, man, I think there are two large areas where this bifurcation is seen. And by, by bifurcation, what we mean is someone is either wholly in one camp or wholly in another that are diametrically opposed to each other. So, for example, reading the Atlantic recently, the view that they've been espousing has been that you're either an anti-racist or a white supremacist. That seems to be the language. And if you have views that they don't agree with, then you're a white supremacist. And there's been this uh, implicitness and understanding, this implication of people 
in in their publication. And I think for a number of reasons, that's obvious why I do not side with white supremacists. And there are a lot of reasons actually why I have trouble with the anti-racist movement. There are a lot of things about it that I think are are problems. I think that it's religious in many ways. I think that it calls for things that I, I can't support. So I don't want to be in either one of those, but there's not really room for that. It doesn't seem the other one is typified by the uh, J.K. Rowling issue that's happened. That's just, and as a recent fan to Harry Potter, I thought I, I was in the airport and I had these thoughts of like, should I have this book out in the airport? Are people going to think I'm a transphobe or a homophobe if I'm reading Harry Potter? But, um, you know, I think it's sad. Carl Truman, we'll talk about it, but Carl Truman wrote a great article about why it is that she has been seen as crossing the line and why she's gotten in trouble. So for those of us that aren't super in touch with the controversy or maybe aren't the Harry Potter super fans like you are, so explain exactly what exactly happened with J.K. Rowling. What is the controversy? What did she do that caused so much ire from her once beloved fans? Yeah, which has involved the potential removal of tattoos. There are individuals who have gotten like Death Eater tattoos and now they're ashamed and want the Death Eater tattoo removed. But I'm also suspicious of what kind of individual gets a Death Eater tattoo to begin with. I mean, that's a, that's a wicked thing. <laughs> that's the one of the bad guys, right? Oh yeah, bad, bad dude. It's a skull <laughs> with a snake coming out of its mouth. I mean, that's not, that's not good. Basically, I mean, to make it short, rolling while saying, look, I support... Uh, the transgender community. I have friends who are transgender. She's, she basically said that sex is a real scientific thing, that there is such a thing as sexual male and sexual female. And I, there's actually a lot about what she said that I don't agree with. But the fact was that she was so moderate, at least five years ago, in what she said, that now she is just anathema to everybody. And uh, people have been, there was a school, I believe in Sussex that was going to be named after her and they canceled that. Again, as I mentioned, the tattoos, um, you have pretty much all the stars are coming out against her online. So it's been, it's been a pretty savage backlash. It's interesting. I mean, this sort of plays into sort of the, the more uh, widespread movement, I guess you could call it that, or at least, you know, what is deemed by uh, the media, the the cancel culture uh, movement is sort of, you know, any indiscretion on the part of somebody, regardless of what they've uh, accomplished or the good that they've done is grounds for removal from, (laughs) from society. We've seen that a lot. Now, there was an interesting point brought up on Twitter that was basically said, you know, of course, cultures in some way cancel things from its common discourse. I mean, we we do not celebrate pedophiles. We do not want to build statues to white supremacists. I mean, this is sort of basic. So we should, we should never sort of con- go the other way, right? And confuse and say, well, we should just never do cancel culture. But I think that there's a, there's an element here where we need to be really one humble and sort of recognize that the Overton window is, is always moving and what our culture today deems completely normal and right in our eyes may 50 years down the road, you know, folks then will look back and say, how, how could those people be so blind and ignorant to, you know, this thing, um, which I think you could, you could come up with many of examples of that uh, in our culture today. 
I think one thing that I've been following is sort of the the statue removals. You know, being somebody from from Texas and spending a lot of time uh, in the South, you sort of just took for granted Confederate general statues. Learning a lot about the history of those things, realizing sort of the reasons why those things were built, you can you can see why and completely you know justify why why many of them are being torn down. Then you see sort of it go a little bit maybe over the line where you see in cases like in, in also in London, you know, them having to build a barrier around the Churchill statue because of people wanting to tear down Churchill. Now, they were called the greatest individual of the 20th century. So somebody that you can, we can absolutely have a debate about sort of the merits of their policies and, you know, was this thing right or was this thing wrong? But the fundamental reason why that statue was brought up, right, was because of Churchill's legacy of, of fighting fascism and saving modern Europe. And so, you know, the alternative, let's not forget, was Nazism. (laughs) It's just sort of interesting to see this play out. And I think that something Christians are looking at and really trying to figure out where do they stand? Because while we can be, you know, absolutely, we can be advocates for racial justice and we can uh, stand up for the rights of marginalized uh, minority groups. We can even be part of the, you know, the groups that say, yes, you know, we shouldn't have a statue to Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy in the US Capitol building. Yes, we should take that away. And at the same time, right, we are, we are always going to be the ones that are also standing up for a traditional and biblical sex ethic, right? So I think there's a lot of Christians that are sort of keeping their heads on a swivel going, well, where am I in the in and then where am I on the out? Who's going to come for me? What's my role? Can I be in this sort of middle space or not even on that same sort of spectrum, right? Like that's sort of where, I, where I'm thinking about this is, you know, I'm being told, hey, you're either in this camp or in, your, or in this camp. And there's that, that's the line. And my first thought is, but I'm not even on this line. I'm, I'm thinking about something in different ways than this. What, what are your, what's your sort of reaction to when people come to you and they say, Will, where are you? What, what camp are you in? Well, it happens frequently. I'm constantly having people line up outside my door <laughs> to give my thoughts. The modern, the modern Solomon. Will, please. Of course. I'm, I'm reminded of the quote by Eugene Peterson or the question, and he asks, who's narrating your world? And what narrative are we buying into? Where are we setting our categories? What are we borrowing from to make these decisions? And so often it seems that we're either borrowing from a right agenda or a left agenda from what we believe is conservative or liberal. And not that either of those are inherently bad, but those can often become our primary source documents for what we think is right and how we decide what we ought to do. And that can't be. Well, I know. I think that's exactly right. The question of who is narrating your life? What is narrating your views on justice, your views on politics, your views on sex, your views on society? I I think that that's a really important question to ask ourselves. And I think you're absolutely right. It's been interesting to watch since since Monday's court case, Christians having sort of a coming out of Plato's cave moment of sort of how I've been thinking about how politics works, the transactions of politics, what would a new way of doing politics look like? It's been really fascinating to watch that because it's really a shedding of that old narrative and then looking for a new one. 
And so you would, you would hope that the, the new narrative would come from scripture and, and nowhere else. I, along with where do we get our sources, there, there's the idea in where well, we see it like in Augustine and Aquinas, Calvin, this idea of plundering the Egyptians. And so when we're coming up with ideas of what does it mean for Christians to engage, what does it mean for us to be involved in politics and culture, we can sometimes be too hasty to, quote unquote, plunder the Egyptians. And sometimes we plunder them for inferior goods, which is really not what we're supposed to be doing. There is this, I think, uh, just to bring it up, one of the things that has been guiding a lot of action and thinking is critical theory, is uh, philosophy of critical theory, and like Jürgen Habermas, who's one of the first advocates of it. And there's a lot about it that is incompatible with Christianity. You can argue that there's good, but none of the good that is there is better than what is given to us in the Christian story. None of the good that it advocates, none of the categories it sets up lead to greater human flourishing. I think that it actually leads to greater chaos, to greater disorder, to greater upheaval, which, which is a result of its Marxist underpinnings, which again, I sound like someone's going to think I'm a Joseph McCarthy guy or something calling out a red scare, but that's the truth of it. I mean, that's the Frankfurt school. And as Christians, I, I hope that we, instead of falling in these categories of these bifurcated categories that are disruptive, you're either right or left, anti-racist, white supremacist, ally or homophobe, instead of falling into both of these, I hope that we're able to tread a, a middle ground, not even a middle ground, but you know, when you said I'm not on the line at all, I mean, something that's totally different, just thinking about these categories differently, freshly in a, in a new way. There was um televised, I mean, Mitt Romney was there, but there was the Christian March for George Floyd that was encouraging and, and markedly different from what had happened with the kind of riotous protesting. But at one point in the march, people started chanting, no justice, no peace. And I didn't chant it. I didn't really feel comfortable with it at the time. I wasn't really sure why. Then I woke up Monday morning and just felt kind of sick to my stomach because I was thinking as Christians, we don't get to say that. We don't get to say no justice, no peace. I mean, if there is justice threatened, we will continue to be peaceful. And if there's if there's no peace, then we are going to be continue to be just. Uh, but we don't get to make those kinds of threats. That's not a, you know, a Machiavellian compromise. I heard about that march. It was something I, I was really hoping to be able to do. Ended up help, having to help a buddy move that day instead. But the thing that encouraged me the most about it when I, when I saw advertisements and organizing for it was that it was different day, different route, different, just the sort of notion of we're part of this problem because we are here in this city. Like we're, we're part of this but we are operating or we are thinking about things on a different plane than everybody else. And so when you see that other, when you see those planes sort of um, come together, it can be uncomfortable because it, it sort of is a appropriation of the world's way of, of doing things instead of a, a distinct Christian ethic. And it looks, it's obvious, it looks tacky, it looks cheap, it looks like the little brother who wants to be cool like the big brother, but is wearing the hand-me-downs that don't fit right. That's just the way it comes off, and I hope we can see that. And, you know, we've spent these minutes talking about kind of what's wrong. We've mentioned this bifurcation, the separation, the chaos, the issues, and we've also alluded to the fact that we hope that there's some way for us to move forward. And so... 
I guess my question is now, do, what are your thoughts on Christians addressing these issues? How do we think rightly about what's going on? Yeah, I mean, that is a huge question. Uh, I think it's extremely important. <laughs> it sounds sort of simple and trite, but like, get off the internet. <laughs> like, we have to first ask ourselves, where are these narratives originating from? Like, what gives them power and breath and life? And the reality is that the internet does it. Social media does the, the ability to um, anonymously cast your enemy in straw man terms and to create tribes, you know, is, is a product of the internet and something that's just way harder to do in real life. You know, there, there's a, there was a great point that I can't remember who it was, but a, a more conservative leaning pundit made was that you know one of the contributing factors to the polarization in america is the the lessening uh, numbers of church going people um and it's because back in the day when you know your whole neighborhood uh went to church together you know you would have democrats and republicans in the pews together and it's really hard to hate you know the other party when you share the deacon board with John Smith. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to do these things in real, in real life. And so when you are on the internet uh, so much, when you're, when you're having most of your political conversations on Facebook comment sections or Twitter, like you're feeding into it. And so the best thing that you could do is just to remove yourself from the, that situation um, because that's where those things happen. And so that sounds simple, but it, it's probably my best practical advice. Well, you, when we were talking the other day, you mentioned that you went, reached out to your sister who is a lot on social media. It sounds like more than, more than you are. And so just kind of get her advice on things and understanding. And one of the things you said that made me kind of got me thinking was that there is no silence on the internet. Uh, you, you, your presence on the internet is known by the words that you type, by the videos you share, by the things that you like. So you constantly have to make noise there. The internet does not provide space for silence, for quiet, for list. If other, if you are quiet and silent, you're anonymous. You do not exist unless you're in a chat room, which then translates out to what we see in the streets. Silence is violence. Silence is compliance. These things where we are compelled to speak one way or another. You're either for Trump or you're against Trump. You're either for Antifa or against, like all this stuff. And it's like, man, First of all, I'm pretty limited on the things that I can like speak to here. Uh, I don't have the bandwidth to like to be authentically caring about them. So, but there's a big pressure that I think, like you're saying, is is cultivated by the internet. Well, it, you know, this is sort of where the real life situations and the internet situations completely differ, right? So, like in in on the internet, right, we're saying silence is violent. If you're not posting something, if you're not posting the black square, if you're not tweeting out about uh, the protest, if you're not posting a picture on Instagram of you at a protest, then you are compliant with, you know, racial injustice and um, police brutality. And then at the same time, if you go into churches or even, you know, let's civic, you know, centers, community centers, right? What is the best thing that, you know, we can be doing right now as people in sort of the majority culture, right? The, the best thing that we can be doing is sitting and lamenting and listening right? And not talking, not speaking. And so you can already see where 
there's a whole value system on the internet that is way different than real life. And if we're going to compare and say, well, which one is most productive? Which one is actually contributing to justice and human flourishing? I mean, I'm going to take the real life, sit with people, lament with folks, hear about their stories, learn. You know, I'm going to take that approach, the approach where I'm not saying anything. I'm not going to take the, the quote unquote virtue signaling route uh, of the internet. And so I think that's one thing uh, that when Christians look at all this kind of stuff, that, that should be their first question they ask themselves is, am I having these conversations on the internet or am I having them in real life? Because if I'm mostly doing it on the internet, I'm feeding into this, this system that isn't healthy and isn't good. One of the things you mentioned was Al Walter's book, Creation Regained, which is a really great short book talking about a reformational worldview. And at the end of the book, he goes into the difference of reformation versus revolution. And he sets up a real contrast between the secular human revolutions of 1789 and 1917 that took place, whose ideas are still in the water in a lot of ways. And he doesn't even contrast it with the 1776 revolution. He contrasts instead with what he believes is a biblical idea of reformation and of renewal, redemption, and change. And it is thoroughly biblical, and it is a lot slower, um, and it takes more time, but it is, it's the mustard seed. It is this planting. It is this slow growth. It is this admission of weakness, of invisibility, of the fact that we can't always see what God is doing, but that he is working, and that it is going to overthrow the kingdoms of this world that, that are out there. And this, the idea is basically you know, progressive renewal instead of violent overthrow. And I don't know, I think when I hear that immediately, like, gosh, I love that. That's really good. I hope that's true. But then I think, is there even patience for that? Is there anyone out there who is willing to actually engage in this patient uh, reform to take place? And he makes this quote at one point where he talks about basically Christians and, and the erosion of the family that is happening. And we can't simply lament that. We can't simply just say, oh my gosh, the good old days of the 1950s. He says, we have to do is we have to reinstate the vital measures and the structures that exist for family to flourish and to be good for society. I think that same thing exists for a number of other institutions, for organizations even. We can't just lament what is lost, but we have to say, okay, what can we do to reinstate and restore what has been lost? How can we how can we remake? And I don't, the problem with remaking is it sounds almost like going back. I don't think that's what that means. It's much more dialectical. It's much more of this kind of hermeneutic, this dialectical circle of spiraling forwards where we're taking and moving on without being too Hegelian about it. But we do want to, to make things better and not just, we're not just trying to retrieve the good old days either. Cause that's not, a, that's not possible. Right. No, that's, that's exactly right. And it's, it's it's interesting that almost all of the various political movements uh, that have been popular, both on the right and the left for the last, I don't know, since really since 2008, have all been billed as revolutions, right? There, there's no shortage of revolutions. Uh, it doesn't matter what your issue is. It doesn't matter what your your political tribe is, right? Like, it's either, you know, you're part of the Bernie revolution or you're in the new Tea Party, right? Which was 
I'm sure at some points, I can't think of a specific time when they use the word of revolution, but people would show up in revolution garb, right? It's the tea party. That's, that's the American revolution. Right. (laughs) And then you've got, you know, the, the pro-life revolution, you've got the uh, libertarian revolution, which, which Ron Paul was trying to usher in. And it's kind of interesting. Revolution of love, you know, (laughs) so there's always, it's, it's always seems to be billed as revolution. And as Christians, you know, exactly as Walt Walters points out, like we are much more in the redemption business. The, and, and that, that comes not from a complicity with the status quo. It's a trust in that God is in, sits on the throne and is making all things good. And that what he created, he has not forsaken. Right. So there's something now that is worth preserving because God has made it so. And so it's important to remember also that when Walters talks about that, when you make the kind of the allusion to Psalm 11, I think that you were making right there, that he's talking about Kyperian's sphere sovereignty, which is the idea that is counter totalitarianism, which again, seems to be what both extremes are wanting right now. I mean, it seems to be, we have got to squash this, how things, you know, any, anybody from having a counter, voice, but that there are certain spheres that exist and Kuiper isn't like limited. He doesn't, he doesn't list them all, but we are called to certain spheres in our life. There are spheres in which God has allowed us responsibility and we're called to be faithful in those, to act those out. And that goes with this reformation idea. Do we see reforming in the spheres where God has placed us? One of the, one of the places that Christians are going to have to completely adapt themselves in terms of thinking about this sense of redemption and, and creation redemption uh, going forward is, is in politics. And you're kind of seeing that play out with um, the recent court decision that, that was released on Monday, the, the case which now interprets uh, sex in Title VII to include gender, gender identity and sexual orientation. You know, depending on what side you were on, um, it was either, you know, a, a landmark. I mean, it was a landmark case no matter what, but it, it was, you know, the greatest um, triumph by the Supreme Court in recent years. Um, or you're, you're on the other side that it is the um, dire moment for religious liberty uh, in America. And it, one thing that we read in sort of response to sort of thinking about the, the case and, and its implications was uh, actually Russell Moore's response to it. And I, I think at the very end, Russell Moore gets to an interesting point, which is what I kind of want to loop into about Christians thinking about politics differently and, and thinking about redemption and not revolution, right? And, and that's, we have to stop thinking about the other side as our political enemy or a sort of the barbarians at the gate that need to be quashed. I mean, as Christians, they're the mission field, right? They're, they are the folks that we need to be loving and ushering and wooing into the kingdom. Now, does that mean that we're going to allow lifestyles and values that are contrary to, to God's eternal world? world? Absolutely not. You're not talking about Democrat versus Republican. You're talking about Christian versus non-Christian. You're talking about yeah, right. secular right. non-Christian culture. Right, exactly. And so we, we've got to start thinking about this differently. We've got to start thinking about it as the mission field, as a a sphere in which God is totally in control and sits on the throne. Um, but that's something that, you know, many of us find ourselves 
called into either as voters or uh, ministry leaders or as elected officials or as staffers for those elected officials. It's kind of been funny to watch uh, the sort of the conservative side of the church sort of realize that political calculations that have been made for the last 30, 40 years don't seem to have paid off. You know, sort of the, we were promised the court and now it seems that we're not. Um, and so now we have to think about, you know, what would a more robust uh, reformational view of politics look like? And it's going to be hard and it's going to be a lot more work, but it's probably going to end up being something that looks a lot more like incarnational ministry than Christendom. Something that I've just sort of been thinking about uh, since, since the case came out. Yes, you mentioned Russell Moore's piece. I was thankful for his insight and his word and the fact that he was like, look, this was a mistake. The Supreme Court, in fact, did make the wrong decision. And the potential of this impacting everything from religious organizations, maybe not churches, but but Christian schools and parachurch ministries to uh, sports leagues. Uh, it's it's far-reaching. It's very broad. Businesses are going to have to, it, it's going to be very difficult. There's a lot that's going on. And yet there is still the call of hope within that and of optimism and not a battle cry. Russell Moore is very thoughtful to not say, hey, we're going to fight back here. It says, okay, what do we believe ultimately? We believe man is made in the image of God, that he made them male and female. We believe that Jesus is on his throne and that he has called us to love our neighbor and be faithful to where he has called us. And so we need to start looking for where to do that and to step in and to, to live that out. Well, and one last point on that, right? Like it's clear that the way that uh, we influence culture and redeem culture is not through instituting laws through you know supreme court decisions or, or legislating necessarily but that you know the first step is going to have to be communicating a positive vision of what the bible says about sex and uh, gender and and having to create a positive vision of that of why it promotes human flourishing and so instead of always you know this is evil this is bad this is you know sort of the always negative approach Christians are going to have to be much more thoughtful and say, well, why do we believe in marriage between a man and a woman? Why do we believe that God created them male and female? We don't just believe them because they're just, they're in the Bible. Therefore we, ha you know, it's there. That's true. Right. But there's the next step, right. Which is, well, why is it there? Well, because God is good and he wants his, to see his people flourish. And so we have to start communicating, well, how does it contribute to flourishing? Why does it, you know, contribute to, to the good of, of all mankind? Um, and so, when we view the other side as, as a mission field, as, as neighbors to love instead of enemies to fight, I think that's going to become much more easier. Um, and definitely, I think, uh, a positive development in, in the way that Christians think about engaging with politics. Yeah, it reminds me of the generative idea with Mako and his culture care book. Uh, it makes me think of that. There, there's a quote by Andy Crouch where he said, uh, creativity is the only viable source of change. And I think for the Christian, that is true. I think sadly, that's not how the world works. Oftentimes, destruction can be a source of change as well. And we have to realize that. And we have to fight against destruction and chaos. That's not our business. We're not in the business of creating chaos. We're in the business of bringing order, which is, is a lot harder. It's a lot more difficult um, for us to do that. But we are 
we are, as Christians, we are walking, talking examples of order out of chaos, of death to life. That is who we are. If we believe that we have been resuscitated, that we were regenerated before we had faith, that we were brought back from the dead, then we have every right in the world to be examples of that and to preach that to people. And what a wonderful message. What a huge message that is super countercultural. Amen. Amen to that. I, I can't think of a better way to end this than on that. But we're out of time, so uh, we'll close it up. Thank you so much for listening uh, to The Will and Rob Show. As always, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at RD Hassler, and you can follow Will at Stockdale Will. Follow Ministry to State at Ministry to State. Make sure to subscribe, leave us a review, do all the stuff that you need to do as good listeners of the show. And we will see you guys again next week.